Welcome to Herbal Explorations, a podcast hosted by Wilson Lau of New Herbs. Each week, we speak to leading experts about what's happening in the herbal industry. Good afternoon, Joseph. Um, we're here with Joseph Brinkman of Traditional Medicinals to talk about a sustainable herbal supply chain. And Joseph, um, in my opinion, is one of the most interesting people in the world. I always come away with some new insight after talking to him, whether it be sustainability, historical tidbits, or a new point of view. How have you been? Doing good. Nice to see you, Wilson, after 18 or 20 months of lockdown. Yes, yes. It's great to see you, too. It's like uh, before we started recording this, I was telling uh, you that just seeing you put this warm, fuzzy feeling uh, in me just because it's great to see a friend that you haven't seen in so long. So, <laughs> Likewise, good to see you. So at the recent uh, American Herbal Products Association's Botanical Congress, there was a panel on the sustainable herbal supply chain. And uh, some of the panelists had, you know, the panelists had definition, multiple definitions of sustainability and some which included the human element, the people actually in the supply chain, just at a very high level. Like what would you consider like the components of a sustainable herbal supply chain? Well, um, of course, it has to be nuanced and it depends on the size of the operation. And um, for example, if your brand is using 100 tons a year of an ingredient that needs to be imported, the definition may be different than if you need 100 kilos a year of something that you can grow or gather near where you're operating. Uh, so there are some vertically integrated brands in the states that have their own farms. Their definition will be different than a brand that needs to import significant quantities of something from different parts of the world. So, yes, um, I do look at sustainability, um, including the social and economic criteria, along with environmental. Uh, you have to factor in. Uh, the personal relationships, continuity, do the operations and country of origin have a succession plan? Um, what standards are they following? What is the governance in the country they're in? Uh, is there good governance over uh, wild areas? For example, if you're talking about wild collection or is there corruption in the government making it difficult to have managed resource management in wild areas. But basically what I've been looking at uh, since the late 90s are all of the emerging voluntary sustainability standards and looking at what criteria they look at. Initially, um, some were satisfied with organic certification uh, and looking at the rules for that, whether it's farmed or wild crop. And early 2000s, I became dissatisfied with that limitation and realized, at least in my experience, that I needed to look at economic and social criteria as well. So I take a holistic approach and a whole ecosystem approach. While a farm, while a certified organic farm, while it's conceivable that a farm could be certified organic, monocropping um, hundreds of hectares of the same crop, in my view, that's not really organic. Uh, it might comply with the regulations. Uh, there are criteria that organic farms are supposed to follow with regard to maintaining the biodiversity in the farm and having leaving certain areas um, 
wild in the perimeter and, and all of that and having habitat for pollinators and other creatures. But in practice, if you've seen a few big organic farms, it's, it's not necessarily always the case. Mm. So for me, a big part is whether the operation, whether it's a farm or a wild collection operation, is uh, not causing detriment to the ecosystem where they operate in. And the social and economic part is uh, folks need to be making uh, a livelihood. They need to be making a dignified uh, income livelihood uh, for being stewards either of a sustainable farm operation or a sustainable wild collection operation uh, without making um, a reasonable income for doing it. It's difficult to expect rural folks to do all the hard work of implementing these rigorous sustainability standards in suffering the costs of uh, time and money of audits and compliance. So um, long story short, I think that brands, uh, the way I look at it, a brand needs to have a visible, traceable supply chain for a sustainable supply chain that takes into consideration not just quality, like implementing GACPs, but voluntary sustainability standards and good relationships at, at every step of the way from the meadow, the forest, the field, all the way through. Um, it's not easy, but that, that's how I would define it. I, I totally agree with you. It's definitely not easy. And I love the fact that you brought up the, the point that it's not a one size fit all solution. Like, you know, your local producer that might be able to wild craft, you know, 50 pounds to make or even less to make a, a tincture to serve their local community is very different than a huge operation. And just because you meet the minimum standards doesn't mean that it makes you sustainable. It can make you organic, but not sustainable and vice versa. And it's a total ecosystem approach. And it's so true. And I think you know, one of the things that I that I really got to know you over is learning about Bear Wild from you at Biofoc over the years, and uh, and that and how it has that social economic component in, in addition to the sustainability component of it, and doing the proper work to make sh ensure that the wild collection practices are done in a way that is minimizes the harm to the local environment while you're um, taking resources from that area. So I think, you know, that's, you know, so well said. It's just, you know, I think a lot of people forget that this is not a one size fit all solution. And uh, that's great. And just a FYI, Joseph, um, we are going to go through a fair wild audit for Northern Sassandra this um, August. So, that's Hopefully awesome. I'll have more to uh, say about that, but thanks for putting me on it and uh, lighting a fire under me to uh, try to get it done. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, for for environmental sustainability standards, the Fair Wild standard, even though the word "fair" is in the title, it's a far more rigorous uh, environmental or ecological sustainability standard than organic wild is, and that's really how I got involved with it because. The criteria and the guidelines for the organic wild crop harvesting practice standard uh, were minimal and fairly weak. Over over time, the control bodies have come up with their own criteria for doing audits, and it's gotten better. But um, the fair wild standard is, is rigorous, and it has tools. Whether you go for certification or not, it has some of the best tools out there 
for carrying out risk assessment on the species level and resource assessment at the site-specific level um, that, that uh, also contribute to quality. Um, site selection is really important, just as it is with organic wild, but I have seen some fair wild operations in different countries that have given careful thought to the areas that they go to the government for to get, uh, for example, a 50-year exclusive lease to a very remote area that has low possibility of contamination or pollution uh, from, from unknown sources and also low possibility that others will enter the area. Therefore, it's easier to implement a plan where only a known number of people have uh, limited access to the controlled wild collection area. Um, about the earlier point, though, of large quantities, there was an article that I contributed last year to the uh, Journal of Medicinal Plant Conservation, United Plant Savers Journal, um, that was done uh, together with the uh, uh, with the IUCN working group, and I wrote about our licorice supply chain in there. And that's a case where the company I'm with, Traditional Medicinals, uses a significant amount of wild licorice. And most mm -hmm. licorice in global commerce is wild, although more and more is being cultivated. But that's a case where we spend a good amount of time looking for producers interested to implement these difficult standards. Licorice occurs in very remote places in the world. Well, remote, I'm in California. So if you live there, if you live where it is, you're not remote, you're there. But, but in any case, if you're in California, if all your licorice comes from places like Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, and China, uh, and then all the way to the Caucasus, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, where, where a lot of licorice comes from, it's far away from here and it's difficult to have the visibility to what's happening on the ground. We spent a long time working on that. And the other part of sustainability um, that can be a complicating factor if you're working for a bigger company is the business need, it's a smart need, to spread risk. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, As you get bigger, you can't be single sourced. You can't rely on a single producer group. Uh, anything can happen. And these are things I've seen happen. The owner of the operation suddenly dies and there's no succession plan. The business is gone. What? The next order is not coming. Um, there's a revolution in the country. There was no revolution last month, but there's a revolution this month, and all all trade is disrupted. Oh, there's a 500-year um, flood. Oh, it happened two years in a row. Um, you can't get into the uh, collection areas. So these things are happening with more and more frequency, which really necessitates for a bigger company to have uh, at least two, if not three distinct producer groups for each important item that you balance your contracts against mm -hmm. and keep all of them engaged with a certain amount of the business. Uh, and in the case of something like licorice, you know, I, we may add a fourth. Um, mm -hmm. uh, well, we do, we have four now. We, we get some from, from China um, that is actually produced, uh, processed into an extract. But, but our uh, licorice is coming mainly from Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and Georgia. And most of the licorice in global trade these days comes from republics of the former Soviet Union, like the, the three aforementioned countries, uh, as well as Afghanistan and Pakistan. And, and um, you know, these countries that 
these uh, newly established republics have only been countries for you know 20 years and before that they were in the soviet union and there's still a lot to sort out and there's still um you know it's not always easy for american companies to have the access you need uh but we've been able to work with really good producer groups in these countries um but you are also a, a bit vulnerable when i was in georgia last time and i asked uh, the licorice collectors there, you know, what do they worry about? Uh, on the list was the Russians invading Georgia again. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so these are, these are real situations. Um, and some of the places, um, the worries are the weather. Uh, licorice is well collected in floodplains and, and some years the floodwaters don't recede, uh, quickly enough to get into the area to be able to dig roots. So. I'm going on and on here, but it's important in the context of sustainable resource management to also spread risk and have really good relationships, not only with the, if you're importing and you're a brand, you're likely working with an intermediate company mm -hmm. that is processing ingredients for you rather than procuring directly from small producer groups that are, might be cooperatives or small brigades of 10 or 12 people in, in a faraway country, you're likely working with an intermediary company who has the relationship. But uh, I would maintain it's really, really important to know everybody in the value chain, and then you can work things out as they happen. Yeah, I totally agree with you. You got to diversify your risks um, by having multiple suppliers, you know, especially, you know, there's geopolitical risks. And then right now we're seeing, you know, in California, even where we're located, we're seeing a lot of extreme weather patterns and other environmental conditions associated with climate change. And we're sort of seeing, like you said, the impact of that on the supply chain and, you know, availability of ingredients, um, quantities of ingredients. So you're seeing this throughout the world. And um, it's really... Did, did you see the uh, Chinese news today, the, the, flo the flooding in Hunan province? Yes. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, it's... You know, we have flooding in Yunnan province. We have flooding in Germany and Belgium. It's, yep. it's, you know, I, I think, you know, global, these extreme weather pattern changes are going to impact, you know, everywhere around the world. This is not, no longer, there's that, that incident over there, right? Wherever over there is, it could be here or there, but. Right. So that's important for long-term planning. As the science evolves, there's more and more papers being published on, on plants ability to adapt to to changing climates and whether plants in the wild are migrating whether they can survive so these climate change predictive models are important if you have a long-term relationship where you have to plan with a producer group this is particularly important with uh, plants that require many years uh, plant maturity before you can harvest so roots that might require five six years or mm -hmm. tree barks that might be minimum eight to ten years uh, where you have to be looking ahead many years for your supply. But if the climate change predictive models say this plant is not going to be able to be grown in this area 50 years from now, then it's important to look ahead with the families or the communities that you're working with to find out what will grow where you are if you can't grow this anymore for continuity of trade relationships um it's really complicated but we unfortunately have to think about these things some plants are moving higher in altitude uh and encroaching 
the species that didn't have competitors before at higher altitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really remarkable. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's almost like uh, they're invasive species now um, as they move up altitude or down altitude or, you know, through longitude or latitude, depending on the situation. I think, you know, one of the things that we're seeing is how do we support our local producers? How does New Herb support them as weather changes so that we can, like you said, if they're doing this now, can we get them to do something else, you know, start thinking about doing something else um, because the traditional crop may no longer be suitable for that. And along with that, what, you know, whole different topic than sustainability is the chemistry of these plants also changed slightly as in some cases, uh, more than slightly, as the regions they're grown in and the altitudes they're grown in and the conditions change, um, it also changes the chemistry of the plant in a way that it may not perfectly match up to what it traditionally looked like. Yeah, that's that's such a disturbing thought, but I, but I have thought about it because, you know, your traditional use, your thousands of years of observation of safety and efficacy of a certain herb, and of course, in the in the traditional Chinese medicine theory or concept of Tao Di, of geo-authentic, um, there's a reason that certain regions were preferred based on clinical observation of efficacy. And when the material comes from another area, right, the chemistry composition may be different and the therapeutic or clinical outcomes could be different. So it has to be monitored. Um, uh, hopefully it's not significant, but but it could be. We, we certainly know that that wild plants that have been domesticated um, outside of their native habitat and then have escaped or naturalized, um, different ecochemotypes develop, the chemistry is different, might still be a good medicine, but is, you have to do the science to determine if it can be used in the same way, the same dosage as the geo-authentic material that is described in the, lit- in the traditional medicine literature. That's fascinating, but yeah. Um, all <laughs> different, all different topic, and sort of to return back to the topic of sustainability and the herbal supply chain. Just wanted to ask you one last question. You know, do you think companies just need to start building bigger inventories, maybe even across seasons and years, to prepare for these extreme weather events or geopolitical events? Especially as you get bigger, right? You may not be able to always satisfy your needs. Um, from that particular year, if something happens, uh, what's yeah. your thoughts on, you know, you know, the idea of maybe stocking a little bit, you know, more material to sort of help smooth out your supply chain in addition to having multiple um, producers? Because maybe, you know, all the stands have bad weather that year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's difficult. It depends on the available cash of the company to hold more inventory in the space, the warehousing space. Um, and the stability of the botanical, uh, you know, we look at that and, you know, you don't, if you can hold a raw material in a relative, in a dried, relatively unprocessed form, not cut it too small. If it's a, if it's a, uh, an herb that's efficacy is dependent, for example, on its essential oil content, um, it's complicated. Really light flowers that are depend, light flowers and leaves dependent on their essential oil content. Companies don't generally want to buy beyond the most recent harvest. Um, depending on 
the form it's stored in and the storage conditions and whether you have a controlled environment and tightly closed containers. Because uh, if you are using materials where it needs to stay in specification uh, for your entire shelf life of your product, then you have to add on the year or year and a half in warehouse or two years in warehouse to that and do stability studies longer than that to see if it'll still be in specification. This is much easier, you know, with, with plants that have more stable, um, chemicals. It's, it's more complicated in things like chamomile or peppermint, but it's, it's easier with a lot of roots, but even some roots, uh, valerian root is also dependent to a certain extent on essential oil content and, uh, some, some, uh, Herbs like that, the European pharmacopoeia has a limit for whole dried valerian and for cut dried valerian, the essential oil content drops uh, by 25%, uh, assuming a loss of a quarter of the oil content just by particle size reduction. So it, yes, um, you know what some companies do, um, supplier, ingredient suppliers like yours, uh, I'm not saying your company does this, but some ingredient suppliers um, if they have rolling over contracts with the brands and they know roughly what the annual amount is and they have enough experience with occasional spikes, they'll come up with a buffer that generally works. In other words, if you need generally need 10 tons a year, some years it's nine, some years it's 11, you know, maybe they'll hold 11 to 12 and they have other customers for the same quality so they won't be stuck with it at the end of the year as a new crop is coming in. You know, you can you can work that out. You're right, it's smart. If you can do it, it's smart. If you can afford it, you have the space and you have a good supplier um, who will work with you on it. It's a, it's a smart idea because there's just too many uncertainties from whether you can even book a container. If mm-hmm. you can book the container, how long it'll take to get here. Um, and, and this is the sort of thinking people in our industry have been thinking like this really since 2001 with the Bioterrorism Act. I don't know if you recall back then, but uh, after that was passed, 2001, 2002, there were such significant delays at the port mm-hmm. that uh, we, we added nine. I think at that time we added 90 days lead time to everything coming in due to the uncertainties at the ports. And then even with that, you have uncertainties, as you know, of whether uh FDA or USDA or Customs and Border Patrol will put an intensive hold on your container while they look at things and who knows how long it's there. So, you, you know, you got to still add several months up front due to those uncertainties. And, uh, of course, the current situation during COVID, the difficulty to even get containers. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. You know, you have to work with an experienced provider to know which ingredients can be you know, be multi-yeared or even even longer than that season, right? Some things aren't very suitable for that and other things are very suitable. And I think the key really is, like you said, is that you want to work with somebody that can help you build a buffer. And even if you run a little bit over, you can also account for increases in sales and delays at port or origin or any other things that may happen, any number of things that may happen. So, Whenever we work with every anyone, we really want to um, understand their situation, how accurate their numbers are, and really, you know, counsel. Don't try to go when you do look at your forecast. Don't look at harvest to harvest. Look at right. look at you know two three months after harvest. Right is what you really right. counsel at New Herbs, our partners, to look at because 
just because it's harvested at origin doesn't mean it gets processed, shipped, and arrives, you know, the next day, right? It yeah, and, and you got to think, you got to think farther ahead. So in our experience, if we know something is a three-year root crop or a four-year root crop, uh, we're being reminded um, each year how much uh, how much more should the farmers plant? Should they plant the same amount for harvest three years from now? Because mm-hmm. the fact is, and, and here I'm talking about some hard lessons many companies in the states learned in, in 2020 when there were spikes in demand for any any products that had immune modulator ingredients in it. Um, you know, if you have if you have a root and you have even if you have a long term relationship with farmers. Um, they need to know each year what quantity you think you need three years from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's something like that, if it's rhodiola, it's six years. If it's echinacea, it's three years. Mm-hmm. You you have to give them a good indication because you can't. It's not sustainable to cause a farmer to take all all the risk. Uh, you you have to make some commitments. Say yes, we want you to plant another hectare because we see our growth rate like this. And in three years from now, if you don't do that. When you go back to your suppliers, they're going to say, well, you didn't plan three years ahead. There's no carryover stock. Nobody speculated on producing uh, 50% more than you thought you needed. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I think uh, these days, you know, I recommend <clears throat> that uh, <clears throat> it, it gets easier the longer a company's been in business. But let's say you've been in business a couple of decades. You have a couple decades of sales data on your products and formulas you should be able to work with a statistician to have a pretty good forward model of what you might need based on the past and based on trends. And you have to get, you have to give your best guess to your supplier who then probably transfers that to the farmer uh, with what needs to be planned for. If you, if yeah, right. If you're thinking year to year, harvest to harvest, you're going to lose. <laughs> you're not going to get everything you need. Yeah, because this is a niche. Medicinal plants, it's it's not corn and and uh, sugar. Um, these are this is a strange subgroup of of plants. And uh, you know, farmers and wild collectors don't necessarily speculate. Oh, let's harvest fifty tons more than than uh, or produce fifty tons more than we have commitments for, and just see if we can sell it. That doesn't happen that much usually. When I talk to farmers, 80 to 90 percent of their crop is pre-committed and the rest is for the buffer for their good customers and to account for any spikes. So, you know, you need to plan ahead. Thank you so much for your time, Joseph. I I think the thing I heard about is planning and uh, make sure you have good partnerships and uh, plan some more. And uh, there's a lot of uh, unknowns out there. So I really appreciate your time and uh, your your knowledge. And it's always great to talk to you. All right, Wilson. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the business of herbs and botanicals, visit newherbs.com. To keep listening to great episodes, be sure to subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, or Spotify. And make sure to give us a rating, too.